Now to open the Word of God, which is another portion of our worship together where we can have all of our hearts attentive to what the Word of God is seeking to uh, proclaim to us here today. And if you've been with us, you know that we are still in the book of Acts, specifically in the 15th chapter of Acts, which is what is often termed the Jerusalem Council. And if you've been with us, you know that we have placed a great deal of importance on this passage, and rightly so. This passage deals with the most extreme, extreme foundational truth of the Christian life, which is, what is the gospel? How is it that man or woman can be reconciled to God, escaping his wrath, and being brought into his eternal presence forever and ever? How is it that man is able to do that? And as we have seen, we have learned that the church was able to establish definitively that the gospel is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've spent a great deal of time on this. But you see, there's a secondary issue that comes as a result of the Jerusalem Council. And the secondary issue happens to pertain to the idea of fellowship. Fellowship is something that we all do together as we gather together as the church, whether it's in person or maybe we're out uh, in the world and we come to, uh, to spend some time with one another in the faith. And fellowship is something that we do in a number of different ways, through a number of different means, and given the uh, differences that we may have culturally or through our personal convictions, there's going to be some times where we may get into some disagreements over things that are inconsequential as to the kingdom of God. And so what we're going to consider today here in Acts chapter 15 is this secondary issue of fellowship. If you've been with us, you know that there are two very distinct people groups who have been saved. We have Israel or the Jews, and you have also the Gentiles. And these are two completely different people. You have the Jews who were raised up in the law of God, raised up and doing all of the things according to God's law, the law according to Moses. And you have the Gentiles who are just completely, completely opposite. Most of them have never heard of God. They don't know anything about the law of Moses. And so they need to be able to be given some insight which would allow for them to be able to have a true fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to open the passage today, what we're going to see is the insight or the principle in which James lays forth here in Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 22, or 21 rather, which will increase our fellowship all of the more and also be able to help us in our witness to the world. It's a very valuable passage before us today. And so as you turn with me there, once again, Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 21, where we'll learn of this wonderful principle about our fellowship with one another. It says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us, a, a, a day of uh, much like the day that we have uh, just come out of yesterday, Lord, but it is a new day that you have made for us, and so may we rejoice and be glad in it always, especially as it comes to this time where we are able to gather together in one mind to consider your word, your most wonderful word, which instructs us, which leads us, which guides us, which, which leads us into the path of righteousness as we seek to do your will. And so, Lord, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would establish us all the more firmly in the knowledge that your word brings here, especially as it pertains to Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 21. Lord, may you teach us your will, your precepts, Lord, and enable that, in, in order that we would be able to, to delight in your word and, and, and lead many, many to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we come to this passage before us today, 
we can be sure that these issues of fellowship that are brought up here in verse 20 are really far removed from some of the issues that we might have in fellowship in our day as well. We have the table fellowship. You have to restrain from things polluted by idols and from what has been strangled and from blood. Many of these carry no real significance because they don't carry that big of an issue of our fellowship together. There's not many uh, squabbles over what type of food it is that we are participating in. But nevertheless, what I want us to focus on today is the principle that is established here while considering these foods and also the sexual immorality that all of us are to abstain from if it means our brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, conscience is going to be seared by us doing these things. Now, this pertains to the idea of table fellowship. Sexual immorality is a completely different topic that we will consider, which is sin, of which we should always abstain from participating in. But as it is in the area of the table fellowship, namely the things polluted by idols from what has been strangled and from blood, these are ideas in which we can take to heart, which would in turn allow for us to, uh, to bring them into all sorts of our fellowship together. And it's a principle that's established here today. And I want to present it immediately at the get-go so we have an understanding of what James is seeking to do as he gives this word here in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 21. The principle is that we must be willing to concede our Christian freedoms for the sake of our brother's or sister's conscience, our brother or sister in the Lord's conscience. We must be willing to concede our Christian freedoms for the sake of our brother or sister's conscience. This will in turn strengthen our fellowship and also it will prevent us from sin, both us sinning as well as our brother or sister sinning. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, and if you have your Bibles, you can uh, try to follow along with me, but I'm there already, so if you don't, I'll just read it. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so the principle that we're going to establish today is this freedom that we have in Christ is a freedom that God has not given to us in order that we would be able to live frivolously in sin, but rather it is within this freedom that God has given to us that we are to flee from sin, both sin of ourself, of our own doing, and also from leading others to sin who do not live in the same freedom that we ourselves are living in. This is the idea of scruples or the idea of personal convictions that individuals have over the idea of eating meat or over the idea of celebrating days. This is not giving way into sin, but rather it is giving way into things that do not pertain to the things of God. And therefore, if our brother or sister has a weakened conscience by us doing these things, we are to consider giving up our freedoms for the sake of our joyful and, and the strengthening of our fellowship together. Now, what I want us to say about this also is, is, is very important. Not only are we to consider giving up our freedoms or conceding our Christian freedom for the sake of our brother's or sister's conscience. But in the same way, we must not be doing this if it is going to lead that individual to sin. If us giving up of our Christian freedoms leads another brother or sister to sin, we have misunderstood this concept entirely. You see, going back to Acts chapter 15 in verse 1 all the way to verse 19 where we are, we have seen that there were brothers of the Lord, uh, brothers in the Lord, uh, believers who had come down from Judea who were teaching the brothers that they needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. This was sin. It was sin because it was distorting the gospel of grace. And so the believers in their freedom did not say, well, well, let's just let them think that they can be saved by works because we don't want to hurt their conscience. No, they immediately went right into their conscience and said, this is sin, this should not continue any longer, and they called for them to turn from that false teaching. What we are speaking on today is something entirely different, things that are not sin, 
but things that happen to pertain to an individual believer's conscience over whether or not God allows them to do this. And if we look into the Word of God, we know that there are certain things in our conscience which we may have different beliefs on, or our convictions we may have different beliefs on, which really have nothing to do as it pertains to the kingdom of God. Now, as we think about these things, what are some of the issues that might come up? Well, one such example we see in Romans chapter 14. Another example is in 1 Corinthians 8, and we'll look at those for a few, in a few moments, but what we must consider now is this principle as Paul lays it out in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What Paul is talking about is within the context of this idea of people who say you must keep this day or you must not keep that day or you must eat this food or you must not eat that food and to do so if you kept that day or did not keep that day or ate that food or did not eat that food would make one a lesser Christian than the other individual. It's the idea of the the strong versus the weak believer and it's something that we can read of in Romans chapter 14. And so the principle that Paul is laying down here is this. Listen, if your brother is led to sin because you eat meat, or if your brother is led to sin because they think that you eating that meat is wrong, you must abstain from that. Consider giving up your freedom to eat that meat in order that your fellowship would be full. Now, the reason that we are to do this in our Christian freedom is if we, in our Christian freedom, lead a brother or sister who has a weak conscience to participate in eating of food offered to idols or anything else for that matter, we not only sin against them, but we sin against our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is a very, very important principle that we must establish from the get-go. And we see it no clearer than in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there was a question that the church at Corinth had given to Paul. Namely, what about food that is offered to idols? Can we eat this or can we not eat this? And so Paul's answer is right here. It's clear as day for us. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that if this right of yours does not somehow take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat foods offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
And so we see this principle. We must be willing to concede our Christian freedom, our Christian liberties, if it is going to lead our brother or sister to have a seared conscience. And this is all for the purpose of a joyful fellowship that we can have, both fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. Now, we're going to consider this topic even more, especially from 1 Corinthians 8, as we move forward in this passage today. But what I want us to think about is this. When we come together to fellowship, we fellowship in many ways, which in these many ways that we have, there are many opportunities for us to maybe lead another brother who has a weaker conscience than we do as it pertains to the things of God. We may lead another brother or sister to sin. We fellowship as we go together in worship services or eating together or serving together and so on. And because of these cultural differences that we have or personal convictions that we might have or, to use an older word, scruples that we might have as it pertains to the Christian life, there is the possibility that we could in no way, in, in, in a way in which we're not intending to do, there is a way in which we could lead another brother or sister to sin as they see us living in the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This freedom that we have to eat whatever it is that we would like to eat. God has not restricted our diets in any way as to whether or not we can eat meat or not eat meat, or eat vegetables or not eat vegetables. God has not restricted us to a particular day in which we can celebrate, or a particular day in which we cannot celebrate and worship Him. You see, God has given us freedom in Christ, but that freedom is never, never to be used as a license for us to sin or to lead another brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ to sin. Now, for those who are not familiar with the term scruple, which is what I'll be referring to when we think about these things, scruple is a feeling of doubt or hesitation about the morality or propriety over a course of action. It is a feeling of doubt or hesitation about the morality or sinfulness of a course of action. And I don't know about you, but I grew up with a number of scruples in my household. Some that were applied directly to my household, and some that were applied to uh, my uh, further fam familial household, my family that was uh, maybe not living with us, but we spent a lot of time with. There were things such as playing cards. Playing cards were sin. Don't be caught with playing cards in the house. Otherwise, those are the devil's cards. And that really would, you talk to my grandmother and my grandfather, they had no playing cards in their house because those were sin. It was a scruple that they had that they thought these cards were sinful in and of themselves. But playing cards is not sinful in and of itself. It's just playing cards. Some others that I grew up with would also be applied to going to movies. Now, again, this was not my own particular uh, scruple that I had. I went to movies, but my grandparents, they had not been to a movie since Birds came out, which I think was 1962. And so it had been a long time since they had gone to a movie because they felt that going to a movie was sin. And then you have also other individuals who have this idea about even the consumption of alcohol. That even if you take one drop of alcohol, that is sin, and you must not do that whatsoever. That was a scruple I grew up with, that I had this idea that to even have a drop of alcohol was to sin. And so if anyone ever drank in front of me, I was worried about it quite, uh, quite severely. And I can think of two examples in my own life where my conscience was wounded as I saw two churchgoers here. Uh, you don't know them, but they were coming here when I was a child here, and I saw them both drinking beer, and I was just like, ooh, they're sinning. I can't believe they're sinning here. They're not drinking to get drunk. They're just having a beer. There's no drinking to get drunk. We know that that is sin. 
again. These are people just who are enjoying a drink of alcohol. And one such example was we had a bowling night here, and, and one of the ladies here, she's not going here anymore, so I can tell this story. She was drinking a beer, and I looked over, and I saw her drinking a beer, and oh, man, my whole night was just shook. I was like, I can't believe that this person is drinking a beer, let alone at a church function. How could this person be doing such a thing at the bowling alley? Another one uh, was with a dear friend of mine named Michael Wilson Woods, who many of you probably know, but who has since gone to be with the Lord. And we were out to dinner with him one time. And I was maybe 12 years old, and, and he ordered a beer to the table. And he was drinking his beer, and, and I, was just, I was just going in on him, saying, I can't believe you're doing that, Michael. That's sin. What are you thinking, doing these things? And he said, D, I'm never going to drink, drink in front of you ever again as long as I live. I was, scrup- I was, I was, I was uh, uh, questioning whether or not he was, he was living for Christ because he was having a beer, one beer, just to enjoy his meal. That was a scruple that I had in my own life, and, and as the Lord brought me from that. I now know that it is, it's, it's okay if you want to have a drink of alcohol, certainly not to get drunk, but there's nothing in Scripture that prevents us from allowing ourselves to have a drink. Even it's actually encouraged in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And often what I heard growing up was, well, it wasn't fermented wine. Well, of course it was fermented. They didn't have any refrigeration, so they needed to ferment it. Uh, otherwise, it would have been even more strong uh, than what we we have today in our day. And so, and so as we think about these scruples that we might have in our own life, we must see them as they are. We must see them whether we are the weaker brother in the case, as I was when it came to alcohol, or the stronger brother in that case, how we can strengthen our fellowship with one another in order that we would be able to remain one-minded, united in the Lord Jesus Christ, and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, going back to the example with my friend Michael, as I think back on it now, Michael saying he was never going to drink in front of me again was actually his Christian duty to me as the weaker brother because he did not want to sear my conscience or to lead me to sin since I was struggling with him drinking alcohol, which in his Christian freedom, he had every right to do so. He used this principle that we apply here today from this passage in Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 21, which is that we must consider giving up our own Christian freedoms or our own Christian liberties in order that our fellowship would be strengthened with one another. Now, if you think about this passage that we have come to today, you know that there is a a large cultural difference between the Jew and the Gentile, especially during these days. In, In our passage today, we have this council that was called because many Jews, believing Jews, were growing upset at the fact that Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey were not requiring the Jews to be circumcised, or the Jews, the Gentiles, to be circumcised along with requiring them to fulfill all of the works of the law. They were troubled by this. This was blasphemous to them. And so they went from church to church in southern Galatia and, and throughout the regions that they were going through, and they were telling all of the Gentiles in those churches, if you are not circumcised, and if you are not keeping the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Their, 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 whole, their whole mind, their whole faith was, was completely destroyed by this idea that these Gentiles were not being circumcised and were not keeping the law of Moses. So they were placing works on faith in 
order that these individuals would be able to be saved. They were saying you need to do works in order that you would be able to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church immediately deals with this because this is something that cannot continue. This is not a matter of the weaker brother versus the stronger brother. This is a matter of the gospel. And so they dealt with it immediately and they came to this resounding, resounding conclusion in verse 11 and also in verse 19. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That was Peter saying that. And James says in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Very clearly they are saying salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. They had come definitively to the agreement that salvation was by grace through faith. But you see, there was this secondary issue because you have these believers, these Jewish believers, who still are going to have their conscience seared by these Gentiles living a life that is completely culturally different than they themselves are living. And so James, in his wisdom, in his pastoral leadership that he gives to this church in the Jerusalem Council, lays down this principle that applies for all time for believers, especially as it pertains to our fellowship, and that is that we must consider laying down our Christian freedoms in order that our brother or sister's conscience would not be seared, thereby leading them to sin, sin and leading us to also sin against our great God. You see, the church had laid down definitively. They said, stop telling these Gentiles they need to be circumcised and to keep the works of the law in order that they could be saved. It is wrong. It is foolish. You cannot do this any longer. What we're going to do, however, is to say to them that they are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the sake of fellowship, we are going to call for them to abstain from these things in order that the fellowship would be full. The fellowship would be complete because as it was, there were those who were not aware of the freedoms that they had in Christ. They had the freedom to have table fellowship between a Jew and a Gentile. As Peter would say in Acts chapter 10, you know that I would never eat among Gentiles. I would never eat among unclean individuals. And God says, no, you must go and fellowship with those individuals. There were still those like Peter who did not understand the freedom that they had to live in through the Lord. Jesus Christ. And so, as we see here in verse 20, we have this list of practices that would be beneficial to avoid for the sake of fellowship. For the sake of fellowship, and as we will see, they also can be beneficial to avoid for the sake of our Christian witness. And we are in our Christian freedom to do this, to, to live out our lives in the freedom that God has given to us in order that we would be able to have a blessed fellowship with one another. Now, looking at these lists of practices that they are called to abstain from, all of these are not meant to be universally applicable. And what I mean by this is we today do not have to abstain from things polluted by idols, from things strangled and from blood. We must still restrain from sexual immorality. That is sin, and that lasts for all time. God's moral law, God's law does not change in this area. However, as it pertains to the dietary laws that the early church is calling for these Gentiles to submit to, we know that these are not to be universally applicable, but only when the issue arises within the fellowship. And we know that these are not to be universally applicable because what I read to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 would be in complete contradiction to the council's announcement back in uh, 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 Acts chapter 15. If Paul says, don't worry about eating things that are offered to idols so long as it's just food to you, it would be in complete contradiction to what James himself says here if it was to be a lasting and eternal binding law on all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But as it is, it is, a, it is not a universally applicable, but one thing in which we can do if we wish for our fellowship to grow with one another. And so as these four prohibitions here are given, we take the first three in the way in which they are given to us in Acts chapter 15, verse 29. Just a few verses later down, uh, as they send a letter to the individuals over in Galatia, it says that we have written to you that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled. We take the first three together because they all center around this area of table fellowship. Table fellowship means just people coming together to eat with one another, and the church did this an awful lot. The church was always coming together and eating together, and so because of this, you could imagine that there would be many opportunities for cultural differences to arise, and if they were not dealt with, instead of having fellowship around the table where people are sharing with one another and praying for one another and and being joyful with one another, they'd just be arguing with one another because one person brings a a rare roast beef and another person is bringing a kosher meat, and you just got all these different type of food there, and no one can get along because everyone is just doing their own thing rather than working together for the upbuilding of the body. Body of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, we see the fellowship that the church would often consist in. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so you have this. You have this as a very important aspect of the believers fellowship together they would often fellowship over food and as you know the differences between the gentiles dietary requirements as it is to the jewish re- dietary requirements there's a large gap between the two and so if they were to be able to have fellowship together they must be able to have a right understanding of how they should go about doing this and really what james is saying here and i have repeated it, and i will keep repeating it because it's the main thrust of the idea of our sermon today it is that they must be willing to concede their Christian freedoms for the sake of fellowship. That means if, 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 if bringing pork to a meal that you're going to have with a Jewish brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to lead them to sin, don't bring the pork. Forget about it. You can eat pork if you want to eat pork, but if it's going to lead your Jewish brother or sister in the faith to sin, don't bring it. Don't eat it. Life and the Christian life is far more valuable than food. Do not allow for your fellowship to be restricted because of the food that you yourselves are desiring to eat. Now, for us, we can think about that, and we know probably that to that extent. We know that most Jews, uh, and, and believing Jews even to this day, some of them still practice this, they don't eat pork. They adhere to the dietary laws that are given in the Old Testament, and they are certainly in their freedom to do just that. And so some of us might say, well, well, I won't serve pork at my house if I have a Jewish brother or sister over because I don't want to hinder their conscience. But some of us might say, well, well, in the freedoms that they have, they should know better that they could eat pork, so I'm going to have pork at the table, and they're going to eat it whether they like it or not. This leads them to sin, and this is exactly the idea that James is seeking to prevent from happening as they come to gather for table fellowship. He does not want there to be sides taken against each other, but rather a mutual understanding of each one another's conscience in order that 
their fellowship would be full. Because as it is, if we want to eat pork, we are well within our rights to do that. But if someone else doesn't want to eat pork, they are well within their rights to do that. Not, not, neither one makes an individual more or less of a Christian. In our Christian freedoms, we have the ability to do so. And so the first thing that he gives in this area as it pertains to table fellowship is that they should abstain from the things that have been polluted by idols, or as it says in 1529, things that have been sacrificed to idols. And this goes to the idea of the temple sacrifices that the pagan priests and the priestesses would do as it pertains to the food. And they would have a bunch of food that they would have, meat that they would buy, and they would, I would offer up this meat to the idols. And they'd often have much meat left over, and so they would sell it in their temple butcher stalls or throughout the stalls throughout the city. And you would have believing Gentiles who would go to these places and buy the food because it was often the choice cuts of meat. It was always going to be the good food sold at a discount because the temple was just trying to get rid of it. And so they say, well, this God is nothing. What does it matter? This is an idol. Idols are nothing. I don't care about these things. All I want to do is eat this food here. And so that what James is saying, doing this, you're certainly in your right to do this, as we read that Paul wrote of in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, but for the sake of your brother or sister's conscience, do not do it in their presence. Do not do it with them knowing because you do not want to lead them to sin. You see, this, this is abstention from things that have been polluted by idols refers to food offered to pagan gods and then sold in the pagan temple butcher shops or butcher stalls throughout the city. And for a Gentile to do this and to have a meal where, where you're having this meal together with a Jewish brother in the Lord and you invite them over and, and you're having some, some meat, you know, some steak or, or something, you know, just something really good. And at the end of the meal happens and they say, well, well where'd you get this from? I want to go check this place out. Yeah, it's over over at the, 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 the pagan temple over there. They're selling it over there. That would just completely sear the Jewish believer's conscience. They do not need to know these things. They do not need to be participating in these things because they still have a weaker conscience as it pertains to the dietary laws that have been given to them in the Old Testament. And so what James is seeking to prevent is to prevent this idea of another brother in the Lord being a stumbling block to another brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. A modern-day example of this, because we don't really have many pagan temples that we can go to to buy meat from. We just don't do that here in, in, in the States, that I, that I know of at least. But there's a donut shop in Burbank, and in that donut shop, you walk in through the door, and they got a little Buddha at the, at the counter. And, and when I would go there in the morning sometimes, this Buddha would be there, and he'd have a big donut in front of him and some coffee as well. And they're, they're offering this, this donut and this coffee to the Buddha. They're offering that up to that idol. For me, it's nothing. I think nothing of it. It's just a little figurine on a table, and he can't eat it. He doesn't have a mouth to take it in. He doesn't have coffee. He can't drink the coffee. For me, all I'm going there for is to get a delicious donut. I think nothing of the fact that this food is being offered to this idol because an idol is nothing to me. But for another brother or sister whose conscience is still weak in this area, for them to see me going in there and me eating of this place, it may lead them to have a weak conscience and lead them to sin. And so for me, if I know that about a brother or sister of mine, I am not going to go into that place because I don't want to lead another brother or sister to sin. This is the idea that is being presented. If we know it's going to lead another brother or sister with a weaker conscience to sin, we must abstain from that because after all, what is a donut? I can go to Krispy Kremes. I can go to many different places to get a donut. I don't have to re restrict my fellowship with a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ because of a donut. That would be foolish on my part and it would 
not only lead me to lead them to sin, but also to sin against the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for the individual who is eating from that place, who is weak in the faith, they are eating from there, thinking as if they are eating something that has been offered to an idol, that they are participating in idolatry, that they are participating in this idolatry because they have a cultural sensitivity or they have a sensitivity to this of which I or someone else might not have. And so for, for me to eat of that, they are equating me eating with that with me being of the world and, and doing as the world would do and eating things offered to idols. But as it is, it's just eating meat or just eating a donut. It's just eating something. It's no significance whatsoever to me or to a stronger brother in this area. I'm going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's the idea that's presented, and I just want to remind you of it here because it's so important that we understand this because of its significance even in our day as we find ourselves dealing with different scruples in our lives. In verse 4 to verse 8 in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience being weak is defiled because they think that they are eating something as if it has been offered to an idol. Now, for the stronger brother, they don't care. It's just a good piece of meat. It's just a good piece of food that they are eating. But for the weaker brother, their conscience is seared, and it leads them to sin, and it leads us to sin against our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must not allow for our fellowship to be hindered by food. And you say, well, what, what example of that do we have here in our day at the church? Have we ever had something like this happen? Not in the area of food, but actually there was an issue that came up about a table and chairs that we had. You may not know this story. I, I, this is something that happened a few years ago here, and we had this old table and chair set that was beautifully carved. And it was carved, and, and the, chairs, the, the chairs came out, and they had dragon heads at the end, and there were dragon heads on the top, and the table legs were char uh, carved, and there was dragons there too. It was a very ornately uh, uh, carved table, very probably valuable table. But for some in our church who grew up with a cultural sensitivity to idols and idol worship saw those dragons and saw the ivory that was in the dragon's eyes as being something which held a demonic influence. It was something in which was promoting idolatry or idolatrous worship. And so for us here as a church, we had to make this decision. Do we keep the table or do we get rid of the table for the sake of the fellowship that we can have with our brothers or sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a very important issue because this, this table was, was, was bringing up images or ideas from individuals who had come out of a lifestyle or who had been a, in, in an area where that lifestyle was prominent. And to see that here in the church was causing their Christian witness to be hurt. They were, they were causing them to sin or to think of those things in such a way that we were promoting idolatry worship here. And so, what's the decision? What do we do? Well, to me, I thought they were cool. I was a woodworker. I liked tables. I liked doing those things. And the carvings were really ornate. They had these ivory eyes in them. I thought they were really cool tables, and they probably were worth something. But 
my brothers and sisters here who did not think in that way, what my, my Christian freedom to keep a table such as that did not matter because my brothers or sisters here in the church were struggling with this. And so we destroyed that table. We destroyed it with grand fashion. I even carried it up to the top floor of the church and threw it out the window so it would explode. We had a, a celebratory time with one another where we were able to rejoice in our fellowship with one another because after all, what is a table as it pertains to our fellowship with one another? We must not allow for our fellowship or, 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 or even our Christian witness to be hindered over a table or over something that has some sort of monetary value to us. If it is going to cause a brother or sister to sin or if it is going to lead someone to participate in that and thinking that they are worshiping an idol and they're just doing it because everyone else is doing it, we must remove our Christian freedom. We must reconsider our Christian freedoms in that area and say, you know what? It's just a table. It's just food. It's just a day. What does it matter as it pertains to my walk with my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, we must not allow for inconsequential issues to disrupt our fellowship with each other. If the person has doubts about whether or not they should eat or drink or keep a table or not keep a table, we must concede our rights for their sake. After all, Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You see, none of us would ever knowingly or willingly force another brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ to sin. We would never want to force another believer in the Lord to sin. But if we, in our Christian freedom, are leading them to sin because of the food of which we are eating or a table or anything of which we have, we must concede that right for their sake in order that they would be able to have a joyful fellowship with us. Now, there are two other matters that are related to table fellowship, and they happen to be in the area that is interrelated, both of that which has been strangled and that which is re- involves the eating of blood. And so what is that which has been strangled? Well, this points to the way that the animal is killed. In the Jewish uh, laws, the dietary laws, there was not to be any blood left in the animal, lest to be polluted by that blood, because since the, the blood, there was life in that blood, and the blood was to be poured on the altar of sacrifice, and so to have anything in blood, with blood in it would completely destroy a Jewish believer's conscience. And so what James says here, abstain from things which have been strangled, which is another, say, another way to say, only eat meat which has been slaughtered kosher, in, in the kosher way. They have to have their throats slit so that all of the blood would be able to pour out of that animal so there would be no blood left in it. As it was, if it was strangled, the congealed blood would form in that, and there would be the possibility that an individual who was eating that blood would also be, or eating that food, was eating the blood that had been congealed in it. And so James says, abstain from these things because it is going to lead your Jewish brother or sister in the faith to sin. Don't eat it in front of them. Don't let them know that you eat it. Keep that to yourself. If you want to eat that, keep it to yourself entirely. You are well within your rights to do that, but do not impose it on another brother or sister because in the same way that you have a freedom to eat it, they in their freedom can refuse to eat it as well, and neither makes one of us a greater Christian than the other. Now, the idea of the blood, well, the blood, you know, we have blood sausage today and other foods that are made with blood or the drinking of blood. That was also to be restricted as we read in the law in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 13, and also in verse 12. Verse 13 goes to that's which strangled. And it says, And anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting but any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover the earth. This is the idea that I'm presented. They must 
slit the throat of that animal, they must drain out all of the blood, they must pour it onto the earth and cover it. And then they take the animal back and they can harvest it for themselves because there's no blood left in it. In the second way, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 12, the Lord says, Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And so you have these requirements laid down for the Gentiles, and they are to adhere to these as a way to prevent as much as possible going forward their fellowship with the Jewish believers who are in their fellowship. There's the Gentiles in the church and Jews in the church, and if they were to have a healthy church that was not only a good witness to the world, but also that was able to have an orderly worship service, they were going to need to give up their Christian freedoms in order that their fellowship would be full, that they would have a joyful fellowship. Now, are they to do this because they fear these believers, or are we to do this because we fear these believers? Absolutely not. We do this out of our love for them, under the love that Christ has shown to us, and then under the law of Christ of which we ourselves are under now, we, in our love for our brothers and sisters, willingly do this, not out of fear, not because we're scared to offend them, but rather because we love them and we want to see that their fellowship with us and with the Lord is full. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13 about food, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You see, in these situations, the stronger must give way to the weaker in order that the church would be built up. And the stronger must give way to the weaker in order that we both can be built up. You know, there may be a time when the weaker brother in, that, in, the, in the faith in that area may come to see of the truth of what the Scripture actually teaches and be able to participate in that. But as it is, we do not need to forcefully impose that on them when they are within their Christian freedoms to restrict themselves from doing those things. There's no requirements either way. They can choose to live in that way if they desire to do so in, in not eating the food or not, uh, and not participating in those dietary customs of which we as the Gentiles might participate in. That's the idea that is being presented here. But then you have this other idea which is very perplexing on the surface because it seems to be entirely different from what we've just talked about. We've talked about the Old Testament dietary laws of which no believer today is under, but here you have this, this idea in Acts chapter 15, verse 20, that also we are to abstain from sexual immorality. And you say, well, this one doesn't fit here because table fellowship, sure, I understand that, but, but I'm to abstain from sexual immorality for the sake of fellowship? Is this not a sin issue first and foremost? Absolutely it is a sin issue first and foremost, but it can also be a fellowship issue as well. You see, this idea of sexual immorality is something in which both Jew and Gentile know, without a doubt, this is sin. And if you're wondering what sexual immorality is, is the word pornea. And this word can mean sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage. It goes to adultery. It goes to uh, pornography. It goes to a homosexual lifestyle or a lesbian lifestyle. It goes to anything that is sexually immoral. It goes against God's design for male and female. Anything. Anything that is under the umbrella of sexual morality is something which all believers are to abstain from, not merely for the sake of fellowship, but more importantly because it is sin and it should be abstained from entirely. And so you say, well, why is this here then? If we're talking about fellowship, why should they be called to abstain from these things? Why should they be called to abstain from sexual morality? Well, as I've mentioned, 
Sexual immorality is also a fellowship issue. It's a fellowship issue, and, and one thing that might have been happening within the church, we don't know entirely because we just don't have the context behind it to prove, but back in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord laid down laws as it pertains to sexual immorality. And the laws in, that, in, in Leviticus chapter 18, we're not going to go there, but if you'd like to, you can read through it. The laws prevented marriage between close relatives. This was close relatives such as your cousins, or your mother, or your father, or your father's wife, or your mother's uh, husband. All of the weird things that could be happening in those societies. That was prevented. God said, have nothing to do with that. And so some people think that this word sexual morality, as it is listed here, is calling for these Gentiles, which had a propensity to have these uh, marriage relationships within their close uh, familial structure. They were marrying their cousins. They were marrying their family members sometimes. And so some people say, well, this is something that, that should not be done. This would completely destroy the conscience of a Jew, and it would destroy our conscience as well, too. And so you have a fellowship issue here, but also a sin issue. And so it's twofold here with this idea of things being of the things in which we are to abstain from as it pertains to the area of sexual immorality. Sure, it is a sin issue, but it is also a fellowship issue. And if the church wanted to have a united fellowship with one another, they were called to abstain from these things. They were called to abstain from these things in order that their fellowship would be full and that they would have a witness to the world which would not be hindered by their constant fighting and bickering and debating over issues so small as the idea of table fellowship of whether or not I can eat meat or not eat meat and so on and so forth. And so they would send this letter off as we see in verse 20. They say we're going to write this letter to them to abstain from these things. Abstain from these things in order that your fellowship, excuse me, in order that their fellowship would be full. And as we'll read in the next week, we'll see that the church received it gladly. They were rejoicing that they were able to participate in such a way that would allow for their Jewish brothers and sisters to be joyful in fellowship with them. They were saying, oh, glad, we'll gladly do these things because we want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ together. We don't want anything to hinder our fellowship together. And you say, well, what is the practical outworking of this today? What is a practical outworking of a scruple that might be had in our society? What is a way in which we can immediately apply this today? What's an example of where this has been applied today? This idea of, of giving up our Christian freedoms in order that the weaker brother would not be led to sin by a weakened conscience as to what we ourselves are participating in. Again, due to our Christian freedom, we're, we're well within our rights to do this. But what's a way in which this looks like today? Well, I want to look at it from the reverse side. We've been talking about how the stronger must give way to the weaker. The stronger, knowing that their brother or sister is led to sin because they are eating food or because they are doing anything else that I have mentioned here, the stronger must give way to the weaker and they must say, you know what, it's not worth breaking my fellowship with you, so I'm not going to do that. But in the same way, the weaker also has a responsibility to grow in the knowledge of the faith in order that they would not be a hindrance to the fellowship themselves. The weaker has also an opportunity to become stronger in a given area in order that the church's fellowship can be made full. And what such, one such example of this, it happened not too long ago, 1985, and there was this issue regarding of what day are we to gather as the body of Christ? What day is it that we are to gather as the body of Christ? Today is Sunday. It's the day that many American churches gather. Many of us. It would be hard to find another church that is not gathering on a Sunday. That's what we do. But you see, there was a church that was seeking to impose Sunday worship as an absolute. They were seeking to impose Sunday worship as an absolute, saying anything else was to go against the New Testament teaching and to go against this idea that Sunday is the Lord's day and it is the day that we must gather together 
for worship. And so their, their, their reason for this is because of a, a Messianic Jewish uh, church that had been meeting in California, and they were, the, the church that is, uh, writes to them was, you know, their conscience was here. They said, how are these people not meeting on a Sunday? The Sunday's the Lord's Day. They must meet on Sunday. Otherwise, they're sinning against God. As it was, these churches, some of them were meeting on Sunday, but others were meeting on Friday. They were meeting on different days because that was the day the church decided to meet. And so this church, they send a letter, and in the, the paper was titled, The American Messianic Synagogue Movement, Deficiencies, Mistakes, and Errors in the Light of the Scriptures. And so they wrote to these Jewish congregations, these Jewish churches, and they said, we think that it is wrong for you to meet on a Saturday or Friday or any other day. You must only meet on Sunday because it is the Lord's Day. And so the pastor of the Jewish church, he's actually a noted theologian, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he writes them back. And he says, I've received what you have said, but you are wrong. You are wrong. You have misunderstood our freedoms in Christ. You have misunderstood the New Testament teaching. You are wrong in these things. It is the stronger going to the weaker and saying you are wrong in this area. Because you say, well, what is the response to this? Are we to meet on Sunday for corporate worship? Must the church meet on Sunday for corporate worship? Or must they meet some other day? And the answer is neither. The church in the scriptures is not required to meet on any particular day. We can meet on Monday, we can meet on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We can meet every day. And there is nothing that goes contrary to the scriptures. We could choose not to meet on Sunday and to meet on Friday, and that would be fine as well. We must not impose a requirement that certainly is traditional in the American society, which is that we would meet on Sundays. We must not impose a requirement on other people who don't see it in that way. That's our Christian freedom. Our Christian freedom in Christ is that we can meet any day. In fact, every day is to be a day set aside for worship to the Lord, not just Sunday or not just a Friday or, or not just a Saturday. Every day is to be a day set aside for the worship of the Lord. And so if a church wants to meet on Monday or Sunday or any other day, they can do it and they are well within their rights to do just that. Paul writes of this, and not this particular example, because this is some 2,000 years ago, but other examples certainly uh, would suffice if we look in Romans chapter 14, verse 5 to 6. He says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. You see, the point is this. Every congregation has the freedom to meet whatever day they choose to meet as, as that particular congregation. If the congregation, the local fellowship, agrees to that day, no other church has the right to impose another standard for them, especially to impose a standard of which they are saying is biblical in which it is not. And so in this case, you have the stronger going to the weaker brother and saying, listen, you need to understand your Christian freedom here. You need to understand that this is not a requirement that you could be imposing on other believers because it is destroying the fellowship that we could have with one another. They had to confront them with this because in their wisdom that they had been given through the Spirit, they chose to do it in that way. And so in the same way that we can consider to give up our Christian freedoms for the sake of our weaker brother or sister's conscience, we must also understand that as the stronger in a situation, we can confront the weaker to lead them to a greater understanding of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he has brought us into. And so there you have this, this idea both ways, both ways which says I can do this one way or I can do this the other way and the purpose of it is in order that our fellowship would be full. It's not to get into a debate, it's not to be disputing, it's not to be an argumentative uh, church, it is simply so that our fellowship can return back 
to what God has intended it for be. That is love for the body and a mission that is going into the world to proclaim the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the church is going to accomplish here in Acts chapter 15 with this council. They got the problem settled with it as it pertained to the gospel being a gospel by grace through faith. And they also settled the fellowship issue. And as we continue on from Acts chapter 15 all the way to the end of Acts chapter 28, the mission was able to go forward. There was not this infighting amongst the church where they weren't able to do anything out in the world to bring the gospel to people. They were able to fix those issues inside, and in turn, they were able to give a wonderful, wonderful witness to the world. And that's another idea that comes from this principle that we've established here today from Acts chapter 15, verse 19 to 21. Giving up our Christian freedoms, considering to give up our Christian freedoms for the sake of a brother or sister's conscience can also have a benefit in the world as we go out and share the gospel message with them. It is, a, it is a witnessing opportunity that we might have if we choose to give up our Christian freedoms in order that we would be able to present the gospel to these individuals. And look at what verse 21 says here. James, in fact, he alludes to this in verse 21. He says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Basically, he is saying, listen, there's Jews in every city that you are in, whether believing or unbelieving. And if you wish to have fellowship with the believing Jews, and if you wish to be able to have a witness to the unbelieving Jews where you do not repulse them by the fact that you're eating things that have been strangled or you're drinking blood, doing these things, you must choose to give up this Christian freedom in order that you would possibly be able to witness to a Jew or to a Gentile. You must give up this Christian freedom. Again, not giving in to sin, giving up a Christian freedom in order that you might be able to witness to another brother, or or to witness to, not another brother, a witness to an unbeliever in the Lord, uh, to, to teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what's an example of this? What's an example of a believer giving up their own Christian freedom in order that they would be able to have a better witness to the world? Well, look to Acts chapter 16, just one page over. Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 3. We see this happen here. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And you say, wait a minute, I thought that they just spent all of Acts chapter 15 saying, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to be circumcised. And here Paul says, well, the Jews are going to be there, so I better go on ahead and, and circumcise Timothy here. You know, how, how do we reconcile this? How do we understand this? Well, in Acts chapter 15, the issue of circumcision was relating to salvation. Therefore, it needed to be definitively said whether someone is circumcised or not circumcised, it does not matter. Their Jewishness or their unJewishness does not bring them to any closer relationship with God. Their relationship with God is solely through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for fellowship or for witness, if, 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 if Paul felt that it would be better to have Timothy circumcised so that they could witness to the Jews, they were also within their rights to be able to do just that. And so Paul 
has Timothy circumcised. Timothy is a grown man at this point. He performs this medical procedure on Timothy in order that they are able to have a witness to the world. They knew that the Jews were going to be there in those places. And if Timothy was going to be able to proclaim the gospel in the synagogues or in the other places, he needed to be circumcised. Otherwise, their witness would have immediately, immediately just been, we're not hearing a word from you because you are not circumcised. Now, how they knew he was circumcised, I don't know. All I know is that him being circumcised was an issue for witness. And so Paul had Timothy circumcised in order that they would be able to witness to the Jews. Because as it was for Paul or for Timothy, they didn't care whether or not they were circumcised. To be circumcised or to not be circumcised was they were really indifferent to it because it did not matter as it pertains to their relationship with God. But in their relationship to others, they said, well, if Timothy is circumcised, we'll have a better opportunity to witness. And so we must circumcise Timothy in order that we would be able to share the gospel with the Jews. You see, this is the idea that, that, that so many people in our day and age are just completely, even Christians, are completely seeking to remove themselves from these things. It's always about my rights, my freedoms, my choices, me, 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 me. It's always this me-centered society that we live in here today, especially in, in, in Los Angeles and in the, in the area in which we live. It's a me-centered society, and this has gone over into the Christian church. But you see, Christianity is not about me, but it's rather about Jesus Christ, our Lord, of whom we are a servant to. And if, it, and, if, and if us giving up some of our Christian freedoms is going to benefit the kingdom of God and bring people into a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who am I to claim my freedoms when my Lord gave up his life for my sake? This is the idea that, that James and, and the rest of the teachers are teaching these churches here all throughout the New Testament scriptures. Who are you to claim your freedoms when Christ, your Lord, has given his life for your sake and has called for you to be submitting to his lordship over your life? He has called for you to go and to preach the gospel. And if preaching the gospel is going to be hindered because you have not been circumcised in the case of Timothy, what is it to you to be circumcised? Do it. Just do it in order that the gospel message would go forward. And if me eating meat is going to prevent my fellowship with a brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I can do it because what is meat? It is nothing. It's just food. It's just food. It has nothing to pertain to the kingdom of God. You see, that is not, we are not me, 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 me in the kingdom of God, but rather we are Christ's. We are his servants. And as he calls for us to live according to his purposes and his ways, we must be willing to give up our Christian freedoms in order that not only we would not lead another brother or sister to sin, but also that we would be able to have a more faithful witness to the world. This is what the early church did, and you can see, if you read through, if you go home, read Acts chapter 16 to Acts chapter 28, and see just how much they were able to accomplish in both their fellowship with one another and also within their Christian witness. In just a couple of uh, verses, we'll see that they turned the world upside down. They could not have done this if they were so worried about themselves and saying, me, 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 it's all about me. They, they were just completely separated from the idea that they had any rights. They were simply living for the glory of God. And if the glory of God meant them giving up their Christian freedoms, then so be it. So be it in order that the gospel would be able to go forward. And so for us today, taking this truth to heart today, let us, to be, let us be sensitive to the scruples of our brothers and sisters in order that we would be more united 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sensitive to the scruples of our brothers and sisters, whether we're strong or weak in this. To the strong, let us give way to the weak. To the weak, let us give way to the strong in order that our fellowship would be greater and we would be able to be more focused on the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. Such a beautiful, glorious day that we have, Lord. I'm so thankful for each of my brothers and sisters here today who are fellowshipping with us in person. And for those who are online, Lord, I thank you for their uh, faithfulness to, to come and, and, and fellowship with us, even though it's not in person. And we know we must be together, together, together in person. We know that many things prevented us from gathering together in person today. And so I pray for them as well as, as they watch and, and they join along with us in worship and in, and in reading the word and listening to the word, Lord. We just thank you for the great joy that you have brought us into here. And with this passage that is before us today, Lord, I thank you that you have led us to a deeper understanding of the responsibilities that we have towards one another, our love for one another. Lord, Lord, may you continue to teach us how we can be more sensitive to one another's needs in order that our fellowship would be all the more sweeter. God, we know that you have great, given us great fellowship even now as we come together. And so as we continue forward, Lord, may our fellowship continue to be full Fuller and fuller and fuller. May it overflow with joy and gladness by your power, Lord. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.